Hello and welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. Each week we break down all the latest blues news as well as looking back on some of the big stories from days gone by. Coming up on this episode, as preparations for the return of the Premier League ramp up, we check in with how things are going at Cobham. We'll look back on the brief Chelsea career of Romelu Lukaku and celebrate the anniversary of Chelsea's thumping Europa League final win against Arsenal. We'll also answer your questions, all that to come, on this edition of Straight Outta Cobham. Yes, hello listener, whether you're with us for the first time or you've been on board since day one, welcome into our weekly Chelsea chat. I'm Matt Davis-Adams, excited that I might well get to commentate on a Chelsea game this month. Now, that's not the only reason I'm giddy with glee, though I also get to pick the brains of the Athletics 3 up front when it comes to Chelsea. Now, I feel like my introductions are getting more and more laboured as lockdown fever takes hold, so this week I'm going Route 1. First up, please join me in saying hello to Liam Toomey. Hello. Uh, Dominic Fivefield is here too. (laughs) Hey, how you doing? Good. And we couldn't have a show. Well, we could and we have actually, but it wouldn't be the same without Simon Johnson. Greetings. Greetings indeed. Just to say, Matt, I'm now getting asked about the Keepy Uppy Challenge on other podcasts. (laughs) Um, It's gained a life of its own. Were all the questions about the sunglasses or were any about the um, the Keepy Ups? No, the the question I got um, over the weekend on on another podcast was uh, what what my potential is what my upper limit is for for keepy uppies they were every bit as interested as you are in knowing <laughs> uh, the limit of my the limit of my keepy uppy talents but I, I haven't made much progress towards the 250 target yet just keepy uppies are not journalism <laughs> <laughs> as soon as we finish this pod you need to be getting back outside onto that rooftop with ball at feet i do think that you'll find it much easier without the sunglasses but you know that's your decision <laughs> Okay, we've got the important keepy uppy update out of the way. How about some news about actual football? So we now know that the Premier League will return later this month with all 92 remaining matches being aired on television in a variety of time slots and, of course, being played behind closed doors. And the first games to be played on the 17th of June. Chelsea back in action that weekend, sometime between the 19th and the 21st. Full details of who's playing who and when yet to be announced at the time of recording. But needless to say, despite all the COVID caveats, it will be a most welcome return. And meanwhile, the FA Cup, which Chelsea are, of course, still involved in, set to resume at the quarterfinal stage over the weekend of the 27th and 28th of June. The semis will take place over the weekend of the 18th to 19th of July, and the final will be on August the 1st. Uh, before we talk football, Liam, give our listeners an update about how things have stepped up in terms of, of training at Cobham since last we spoke. I, I guess the, the, the big thing is that they're, they're back into, into full contact mode. Yeah, they're they're doing contact training again, albeit with some with some strict limits. Uh, I think there are time limits on the contact sessions, and obviously Ngolo Kante is is still not participating with the rest of the group while they have separate conversations with him. But it's an important step because we know that for all the you know tailored individual programs and exercise bikes, and in Cesaris Pilaqueta's case, like private exercises with his dog in his garden that stuff doesn't get you football fit and and even training in isolation at Cobham meters away from everyone else will not get these guys fit enough to play football at Premier League intensity and uh, and so now now we just see how it goes from here I think Lampard will be hoping that this can act as a as a second pre-season I think all clubs should be expecting a few injuries once the Premier League restarts, but 
the harder they work now, the more they can minimise that that issue in the first couple of games back. Yeah, question here from uh, from Kevin via Twitter. I'll put it to you, Dom. He says, with the Bundesliga being the blueprint, brackets or Bundesprint, nice one, Kevin, uh, for other leagues restarting, injuries to Poulsen and Haaland have made me wonder, will we see bigger squad usage as a result of more fixtures over a short period, especially as Chelsea look to secure top four? I, I guess, Dom, the answer to that is yes. And, and the fact that we've seen reports of Armando Brozier training with the first team regularly is maybe a sign of that, that they will have to dip into the uh, the under-23 squad on occasion. Definitely. I mean, that's 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 for soft tissue in- injuries alone, I would, I would imagine. I mean, you know, obviously a different scenario if somebody actually tests positive for coronavirus, albeit there were no positive tests in the last round of Premier League testing this weekend. Um, I think th- th- there was a statistic going, doing the rounds of something like 250% higher uh, soft tissue injuries in the Bundesliga since it resumed. You have to look at it as a, it's a three and a half week pre-season in, a, in effect going straight into competitive action of some kind. Now, normally speaking, you'd have six weeks. So you're running the risk. And there was a UEFA study that came out this weekend, which suggested that, yes, we should anticipate quite a lot of soft tissue injuries once football returns in this guise. So, yeah, they're going to the five substitute rule was was brought in to help along those lines and to, to, to give people a bit of a breather. But I mean. Chelsea are well placed, the better place than most clubs, I'd suggest, because the quality of their under 23s will will benefit them and bolster their options. And a lot of other clubs are going to be limited in terms of the number of players that they can actually use. Yeah, you might well be aware, listener, but the uh, the youth seasons have all been curtailed. When it was for the under 23s, Chelsea were top of PL2 and, and hadn't lost a game in that competition uh, this season. So, Simon, that's the kind of injury aspect from from a physical point but I'm, I'm guessing mentally this coming back into full contact training is is going to be potentially quite taxing for players I suppose once you get it done for a few days and we get the clear rounds of tests that that will help you but but initially we know how Angolo Kante feels about it but but for everybody it, it must be odd and, and, and slightly worrying to get back into tackling and, and close marking and these kind of things. Yeah you would have thought so but um, speaking to someone a few days ago um i i was very much led to believe that the mood had changed a little bit um that actually uh, a lot of the concerns that had been sort of expressed among the players on the whatsapp group had given way to genuine excitement to get football back playing again and, and perhaps some of the some of the other players of course kante's situation has been well documented but there were other players that had concerns as well um that they're they're they're, they'd become a bit more relaxed perhaps because um the lack of positive tests going around the the premier league has reassured them somewhat and of course we we learned over the weekend that there'd been no positive tests in the fourth round of, of testing which was the first to be conducted since contact training so the vibe i was getting was that actually the players are just now really sort of looking forward to getting back underway and and getting back playing again, which is a very positive sign for Frank Lampard because um, if football does resume as intended, um, then Chelsea have to sort of get straight up to speed really because of the the tightness of that race for fourth stroke, fifth spot, depending on City's Champions League uh, appeal with their uh, Champions League ban. 
Um, so Chelsea can't afford to be slow out of the blocks. They're going to have to uh, get going quickly. So if the players are up for, for playing again, then uh, then it's obviously going to stand them in good stead. I just wonder as, as well, Dom, if, if Chelsea might actually have a bit of an advantage because of this under-23 squad. One thing they have is quality, but if Chelsea need to use them... They're used to playing in front of nobody or very few people at Oldest Shot or, you know, games at Cobham where there's nobody there. And, and and the other thing to consider in this is that Chelsea's home record in the Premier League this season has not been good for a team challenging for a top four place. So maybe the absence of supporters for those two reasons might actually be, be a slight benefit in the way that it wouldn't be to somebody, say, Manchester United, who picked up most of their points at home. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I love that the point about the twenty threes is is very valid, and and you know it'll be it's intriguing to to find out how players are going to react to to playing in empty stadia for the for the remainder of this campaign. Um, they do players do tell, say that they feed off crowd noises and the atmosphere and and the energy provided from from the crowd. It may go the other way as well. You may get players... I mean, Roy Hodgson, I spoke to earlier this season, talked about training ground players, players who are absolutely fantastic in training, but as soon as they get have to play in front of more than 10 men and a dog, they, they really struggle to raise their games. It's almost intimidated by the atmosphere. So maybe those guys will, will thrive without supporters there and we'll get to see you know, the, the, the true player emerge. But... All these scenarios are, are to be explored. A, a lot of this is going to be very, very surreal, and and we've seen so many away wins already in in the in the Bundesliga. Um, you know, that doesn't particularly bode well for Chelsea's home record, and in the, it's it's a real leveler, generally speaking. Um, you know, teams are stand as much chance going away from home and playing in front of those supporters as as the, as the hosts do. It's going to be they're going to be some very odd results thrown up over the next uh, six weeks. Chelsea's next game due to be away at Aston Villa, Villa Park at a stadium which will feel particularly odd empty because it's such a big cavernous arena. But here's hoping that game does indeed take place in just a few weeks' time. OK, next up today, we're going to talk about a top-class striker who never made the grade at Chelsea. So the chaps have joined forces for a joint piece for the Athletic, chronicling the Chelsea career of Romelu Lukaku and the time he almost returned to Stamford Bridge. It's up on the site now, so do check it out. Uh, we've spoken about George Weyer and Didier Drogba in recent weeks. Simon, what, what was the inspiration for writing about a, another Chelsea striker? Well, I just thought it was um, very appropriate given that Chelsea are actively pursuing a new centre-forward this summer. Uh, and it's going to cost them quite a lot of money. Um, and so when you think back to Romelu Lukaku, who was a self-confessed Chelsea fan, um, actually is pictured, and that's why I made reference to it in the piece, that there's a there's a clip on YouTube of him visiting Stamford Bridge before he actually joined and talking about... And you can really sort of see how emotional he is when he's talking about his dream of playing for the club. And he just really hammered it home to me once again how and why this this sort of player never worked out, given his hopes and dreams of playing for Chelsea. And he's got a fantastic goal-scoring record um, at club level and at international level. And you just sort of think the amount of money Chelsea has spent over the years and are about to spend again, and yet they had this player all along that, that, that could have, could have um, and perhaps should have been part of things over the last few years. Um, and, of course, I go into the, the 2017 bid to re-sign him when he again wanted to come back to Chelsea and it just didn't work out it's uh, it's just 
it's just one of those what ifs, could haves, perhaps should haves stories that football throws up sometimes. And I think Romelu Lukaku, who's now starring for Inter Milan, you, you do sort of wonder what what might have been if if perhaps things had worked out the way he wanted. And Liam, if we spin back to to the summer of two thousand and eleven, when Lukaku signed, fair to say that actually it was his his love for the club which counted against him because he maybe came at the wrong time, i.e. when a new manager in Villas-Boas was, was in place, but also when Chelsea had five centre-forwards in front of him, effectively. So so maybe if he joined a year later, things might have been different? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, you still had Didier Drogba, you still had Nicolas Anelka, um, probably towards the end of their of their Chelsea careers, but still operating at a high level. Daniel Sturridge was the emerging young star in in that squad at the time um and so the the competition was particularly fierce and i think the lukaku story is probably in some respects a cautionary tale for for why so many agents i think so many good agents steer their talented young players away from making these kind of emotional decisions about which club you want to play for you know it it's striking how how few talented youngsters end up joining the club they supported as a boy because when it comes to make these decisions for the for the good of your career it has to be you know a, a professional decision it can't be purely about the the club you idolize or in Lukaku's case I think the the opportunity to work and train with Drogba was a big um a big attraction as well but he he just wasn't ready to compete at that level for for regular minutes but it didn't help that you had a coach in Villas Boas who had a very different idea of the way he wanted to play football, a very different idea of what he wanted his centre forward to be. And Lukaku, even if he was older, may not have fit that blueprint. And 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 of course Villas Boas didn't didn't last very long anyway because he couldn't sell that vision to to other people at Chelsea. But if Lukaku had gone elsewhere, and and that quote is very much in the piece as well, that if if he'd waited to fulfil his Chelsea dream a little bit later in his career, I think that the timing might have worked out. But he he joined a bit too early, then had to go on loan, and and from then on the the timings never really matched up. So that first season pretty unmemorable, just twelve appearances and only one league start, which was on the last day of the season. The next campaign spent on loan at West Brom, he gets seventeen league goals for West Brom. Remember, uh, including a hat trick on the last day in the. 5-5 draw with Manchester United at the very end of Fergie time. Even that, though, not enough to convince Jose Mourinho to keep him around for long. After he misses a penalty in the 2013 Super Cup shootout for Chelsea against Bayern, he's sent to Everton initially on loan. A great question here from Harry Dom. He says, if Lukaku had scored that penalty against Bayern in the Super Cup, would Mourinho have treated him differently and tried to integrate him more into the team from reading the piece the the relationship between Mourinho and Lukaku not actually one of the major stumbling blocks in uh, his progress at Chelsea it would seem Um, (laughs) there was quite a a celebrated press conference um, in 2013-14 when Mourinho urged Lukaku to tell the country why he'd left Uh, it was one of those brilliant loaded Mourinho presses where he, he had a message to get out there. Uh, he was he was in some ways he was he was putting all the onus on on Lukaku to basically explain that he he'd requested the move. He'd he'd been the one agitating to in 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 search of first team football. He was the one that was 
showing a lack of patience. Um, and this was at a time when the whole of that 13-14 season, pretty much, Mourinho spent most of the time whinging about the the fact that he had Samuel, an aged Samuel Eto'o, uh, a very unprolific Fernando Torres and, and Demba Barr as his striking options. And, and there was Lukaku doing very, very well um, for a second successive season on loan at Everton that, that, that year. And, and there must have been a source of regret uh, there that, that he, he didn't have him available. But he just wasn't... Mourinho couldn't guarantee the youngster uh, the, the number of games he was going to play um, that season. And I think probably if he had stayed, if he had actually just, just bit the bit, bit his tongue and, and, and in the wake of the Super Cup penalty, just, just just stuck about for the rest of that window, he probably would have played quite a few games, a lot more than those other guys, the, the sort of elder statesman in that Chelsea squad. And, and he might his Chelsea career might have worked out very, very differently. As it was, he almost burnt his bridges by demanding that move. And from that moment on, I don't think Mourinho was was having him. We shouldn't forget that it was Lukaku who scored the first goal of Mourinho's second stint in charge of of Chelsea. Albeit it was a penalty in a pre season friendly, but you know he he. I remember interviewing him on the pitch after that that game when it was all the talk at the time was of Wayne Rooney coming in, um, and even then Lukaku sort of looking over his shoulder, thinking, "Well, hold on a second, I've just scored here. I'm, I've got I've got an opportunity." and and now everybody's talking about Rooney coming in. Maybe they don't have the faith in me that that I have in myself, and that really proves his undoing. Yeah, I think uh, Dom sort of made a very valid point there that um, that Lukaku certainly mentally w- was in a difficult place, and it, it started with that V.S. Boas reign where he was not only underused, he was he's very much felt disrespected, and so even though he actually had a reasonable relationship with Mourinho. Mourinho's actions spoke louder than his words. The the, the pursuit of Rooney, etc., and it, and this would carry on in 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 later years as well. With, of course, b- before he made the move to to Everton permanent, um, he got wind very early on of of Chelsea pursuing Diego Costa, and he was just like, "Well, when am I ever going to be number one? What 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 more do I have to prove that I'm ready to lead the line for Chelsea?" And and so. In many ways, his his mind was made up for him by the way that his managers treated him at Chelsea. But Mourinho, meanwhile, was was sort of thinking the way he reacted to that penalty, handing in a transfer request the next day, was a validation of his suspicions that he wasn't in the professional mindset to cope with playing for a big club. Um, albeit, I hasten to add, Mourinho did message Lukaku after he completed that loan move to Everton to wish him all the best. So the two of them did have this sort of strange relationship where perhaps face-to-face they got on pretty well. The press conference that Don was referring to was in response to something Lukaku had said. And and when Marino's under attack, you know what, you, what you're risking. He's always going to fire back at you. But it's a measure of their relationship that Marino played a major part in convincing Lukaku to turn his back on a move back to Chelsea in 2017 to join him at Manchester United. But in in that summer of 2017, Ch- Chelsea Liam were pretty much convinced that they'd got they'd got Lukaku back. Michael Emanalo certainly felt the deal had done, and, and he was a, a, a key figure in it. So what went wrong? They were very convinced, and uh, and when it did go awry, there was an awful lot of anger and frustration at at, at Stamford Bridge 
um, largely directed at Mino Raiola, who Chelsea felt had kind of led them down the garden path, really, on on the deal. Um, it, it's worth saying that, that negotiations between Chelsea and Everton are rarely smooth. There's a long history of also factoring in the failed John Stone's pursuit, hostility between the clubs at boardroom level. Um, and that certainly didn't help with Chelsea's pursuit of Lukaku, but it did seem like the deal was at a very advanced stage and Chelsea were supremely confident that they were going to land what was Antonio Conte's top target. Um, but I think it was partly Raiola, it was partly, as the piece says, um, Lukaku staying with a fellow Raiola client, Paul Pogba, in Los Angeles over the summer and, and maybe having his head turned in that sense. That, that turned things around and 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 it's a it was a seismic uh u-turn because i think it it set in motion the chain of events that that led to antonio conte kind of unraveling at chelsea but it also um kind of shut the door for good on on lukaku becoming chelsea's main man as, as he'd always dreamed and the, the the move didn't really work out for anyone i mean he did he did pretty well at united for for a little while but not well enough to keep Mourinho in in the job for for too long um and in the end I think you could see Lukaku's dissatisfaction with the way things had gone by the fact that he he left Raiola and uh and now he is finally working for Antonio Conte who has wanted him for a long time and, and he's playing really really well for him which suggests that if he had gone to Chelsea and, and been the successor to Costa uh, Chelsea could have been in a, in a very different place, and and Conte, you know, things might have worked out very differently for him as well. So to wrap it up, then Dom, question here from at CFC Era: Any chance of Lukaku making a return to the Bridge before his career ends? What do you think? I would be doubtful, to be honest. Chelsea managers these days seem to to want a a striker, a tip of their team who can hold the ball up and play well with his with their back to goal. And, and I'm not convinced, for all that he has the physique to do that, I'm not convinced that Romelu Lukaku enjoys playing that game particularly, or indeed plays it particularly well. He's a good goal scorer. He's got a lot a lot going for him. And you just have a look at his performances for the Belgian national team uh, over the over the years. Um, but I, 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 I suspect we've probably seen the last of him in England, let alone at Chelsea. Well, we've only scratched the surface of the article. Uh, do head over to The Athletic and check it out once you finish listening to the show. Okay, last up today, we're going back to Baku, as an Azerbaijani Amy Winehouse tribute act might say. So, given that we've just passed the one-year anniversary of Chelsea's 4-1 Europa League final win against Arsenal, we thought we'd have a little reminisce on that memorable evening. Dom, Simon and Liam were all in Baku. Uh, the story of how you all got there is, is well worth retelling. Liam, you spent more time on planes in that one journey than most people do in half a decade. I'll, I'll never forget it. Kiev, Tbilisi, Moscow and Berlin were the, were the cities that I passed through on my way to and from Baku. The whole journey, um, well, the, the, the whole odyssey, shall we say, took up an entire week and of which only kind of four days were spent in Baku. The flight situation was absolutely ridiculous and I felt really sorry for for the fans that were trying to, you know, make make real efforts to get there and support their teams in a major European final. The Baku airport was not equipped to uh, 
welcome that many supporters. There just simply weren't enough flights. The flights there were were very expensive. Um, and I, I actually almost missed my connection in Tbilisi on the way to Baku. And I was on the same plane as about 15 to 20 Arsenal fans who were in animated discussions about sourcing what would have been a £300 eight and a half hour cab from Tbilisi to Baku across the, the Georgian Azeri border. And I do know a couple of Chelsea fans that ended up actually having to take that route because there just weren't the flights to Baku. And the result was that uh, we, had, we had a very strange atmosphere in the stadium. I, I, I know that for certain regional supporters clubs of both teams, like the I remember seeing the Chelsea Iranian supporters club and and Iraqi supporters clubs. I, I think they really appreciate the occasion because it was a it was a rare opportunity for them to make a fairly convenient journey, uh, relatively speaking, to see their teams. But for a lot of the traditional hardcore supporters, it was either an incredibly arduous experience or they just made the judgment call not to go. And, and it meant that there were a lot of people in the stadium who were not necessarily the the most committed fans. And there were even stories, I remember in the aftermath of the final, that the Azeri authorities had basically opened the doors and started letting people in for free after kickoff just to to fill the, the empty seats. Um, so it all contributed to a very surreal atmosphere. It ended up being a happy occasion for Chelsea and the perfect finale for, for Hazard. And I found Baku actually a, a quite a pleasant city um, once he got there, but the problem was getting there and getting back. Dom, you managed to get there and get back. You had an interesting travel companion as well. <laughs> I, I, my my travelling was, was tedious compared to, to Liam's. I just, just went straight there and came straight back. I was one of the lucky ones. But yeah, Alan Pardew, who was, who was doing the BBC punditry um, for their coverage. I think it was the Beeb anyway, maybe Five Live. Yeah, he was he was on our little trip. About five or six of us went over and uh, and in, and enjoyed the enjoyed the city. It was look, Baku. I've been a few times. I've been a few times with England and, and Wales over the years. It's an it is an amazing place. Um, it's the old town there is is stunning and very very interesting. But it the lunacy of holding <laughs> the Europa League final between two London clubs in such a far flung part of Europe. Um, on the Caspian Sea was just uh, it was ridiculous utterly ridiculous but but really I suppose UEFA just felt they couldn't they couldn't do things on a on such short notice and, and, and change it to make it far more sensible um, it did make for a very surreal atmosphere um, but there was enough going on on the pitch I think to yeah to, to, for, it to for it to be a memorable occasion whether that was as Liam mentions Azard's you know farewell uh, to Maurizio Sarri actually winning a major trophy and ste- and stepping onto a pitch. Uh, we have to bear in mind that this this man was so suspicious. He he never went anywhere near the playing surface uh, on on the, on the day or occasion of a match, and yet at the end of of that contest, he was he he couldn't contain his excitement. It was actually quite nice to see. I think it was one of the few moments um of Sari's brief time at Chelsea where he, he sort of felt connection with him and he, he was almost endearing that his his the glee that he had at, at winning a, a major trophy felt good for him on, on on that count 
Yes, yeah, so his final Chelsea game, also David Luiz and Edin Hazard, and typically Simon Hazard made sure that he left Chelsea supporters with, with happy memories, not just of his, his whole career at the club, but, but of that game as well. Yeah, he, t- he turned it on uh, one last time, um, although bizarrely was given the award of uh, play of the tournament uh, subsequently, um, even though um, I think they were his only goals um in the tournament itself and Giroud was top scorer and of course he put Chelsea on the road to victory with a fine header against his old club um yeah it was a it was a it was as the guys have said it was a just a very very surreal scenario to be in it felt more like a pre-season friendly kind of vibe like when you when you go abroad with Chelsea's as we've all done on a few occasions and and they've played some sort of tournament overseas in sort of July August to prepare for the new season. It had no sort of feel of a massive game at all. Um, and I was also very surprised with Arsenal's performance. I know Chelsea certainly turned up, but this was do or die for Arsenal. This was their chance to save their season, qualify for the Champions League. You expected them to really turn it on, just like they did against Chelsea in the 2017 FA Cup final to to rob them of the double but they didn't really turn up and and Chelsea took full advantage and and certainly enjoyed the occasion of course Hazard's departure like his final game took most of the headlines but of course there was the the uh the subplots of Rob Green um standing in the pitch his only real moment on the pitch for (laughs) Chelsea apart from in pre-season lifting the trophy um and also my last interview with Gary Cahill, which uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> subject of great mirth among the press pack, uh, my relationship with Gary Cahill. And, uh, there were violins it, in the mix zone. Well, it was very amusing. Well, well, amongst us anyway. I'm not sure if the listeners find it amusing. But <laughs> the, uh, Gary Cahill, who wasn't involved in the game, um, came walking down the mix zone, was, was snubbing everyone's request to stop and talk. And I, for what, just just for just to sort of play at the crowd, just for one last time, I said, "Gary, any chance?" And the whole press pack sort of went, "Oh, go on," in a sort <laughs> of attempt to persuade him, because I think everyone wanted to see this. For some reason, they wanted to see me speak to Gary Cahill one last time, and um, <laughs> I felt a bit under pressure actually to perform oh. for the for the audience. But um, did he yeah, agree? Had... Did he agree to the interview? Yes, he, yes, he turned around. I think the peer pressure got to him. And uh, he turned around and, and uh, came back to me, and we we spoke for a few minutes. But no, it was a it was a very very surreal trip. Liam, we we should not forget one of the other subplots around this game occurred the night before on the pitch, yeah, involving Angelo Kante, but but more visually involving Maurizio Sarri. Yeah, and and there was an open training session at, at the Baku Olympic Stadium, which to me when taken in the context of what Chelsea went on to do the next day in the final, kind of summed up uh, the a lot of the Abramovich era of, of Chelsea being this absolute basket case that wins, that somehow finds a way to, to, to keep winning, even with all the drama going on. So to to revisit the scene, um, we were all watching the, 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 the standard open training session on the, on the, match pitch the night before the game uh we half of us you know we were only really sort of had one eye on the training session because we were also trying to file our copy you had the sight of Maurizio Sarri storming off towards the tunnel taking off his hat and first of all he actually threw it twice 
I remember. He, first of all, he, he sort of gently lofted it in a graceful arc towards the floor, and then he picked it up and slammed it down again. Um, and we thought, what on earth is this all about? And then the, the video footage was played in the press box of, of David Luiz and Gonzalo Higuain, embroiled in some rather tasty challenges, some rather tastier challenges than you would want in, in an open training session before before a huge game, especially when about 20 yards away, N'Golo Kante can barely break into a jog with with one fitness coach as they're as they're guiding through the him through the most cautious set of exercises I think I've ever seen. So it it was just a, a completely surreal experience and the and the rest of our evenings were taken up with chasing up this story which was seemed to be, you know, Chelsea in chaos on the verge of a major final. It was pretty much accepted at that point that Maurizio Sarri was probably going to leave whatever happened. And and so it felt like things were were ending along the same lines of of what had been quite a toxic season. And then they go out and and completely smash a, a stunningly disinterested um, Arsenal team in the second half of that game. And it, and it just summed up to me watching Chelsea lift the trophy and the celebrations afterwards. Just what a kind of unique experience it is covering Chelsea because they can go from absolute disarray to to triumph in the space of 24 hours yeah I'll just quickly uh quickly add that um it, it came to light that Sarri bizarre, bizarrely the reason why he, he sort of threw his toys out the pram was apparently he was really upset at finding out that the um training was was going to be attended by the media um and he wanted to go through certain drills um and, and preparations for the Arsenal game, which took everyone by surprise, really, because he obviously had a lot of time to put those kind of things into practice in the confines of Cobham. And secondly, it was pretty much an open... It wasn't hidden from him that the media would be um, allowed to attend training the, the night before the game, because that's, that's just standard practice. So um, let's just say that his fit of pique took... Um, the people he was uh, uh, closest to um, a bit by surprise and just sort of showed how he could be quite a difficult man to work with um, because he, uh, he, uh, he just sort of would have these moments where he would uh, show uh, fits of anger over things that really he, he shouldn't have been doing so. Yeah, and we get to the uh, the actual game, and there's some classic Sarri trolling of Chelsea supporters too. With the game over, 4-1, 18 minutes left, uh, instead of bringing Gary Cahill on for one last hurrah, or maybe giving George McEachern or Conor Gallagher a, a taste of a major European final, he puts on Davide Zappacosta and Ross Barkley. Um, quite funny. La- last thing I want to talk about, Dom, is the Arsenal goalkeeper that night. Obviously, it was Petr Cech, his last uh, game of football, at least. Did he know at that time that he'd be working for Chelsea within a month or so? Presumably, there'd been some contact between he and the club at that point. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think he, he was well aware of where he was going. I think the, the world was as well, to be honest. I remember uh, Azpilicueta was asked about it on the eve of the game. Unai Emery was certainly asked about it in his pre-match press conference as well. And he, he sort of stood by his... Uh, Czech's professionalism and and look, no one no one doubted that that that, that Petr Czech would give his his all for Arsenal um, in in his final game as a professional footballer. But 
it was a very very strange scenario to be playing out you know when you okay you might have a player that that's going to transfer between clubs and might be aware that he might be joining another club he's a, a current opponent um at some point in the future but but to be quitting football and joining in an administrative capacity um you know and there were conspiracy theories going around. I mean, it's it slightly makes life slightly easier, possibly for Chelsea, if if Arsenal aren't competing in the Champions League, and you know, that that sort of it left itself ripe for those conspiracy theories. Although I would say that that Czech's professionalism couldn't be called into into question. I think we should probably have faith in the uh, <laughs> in the inadequacies of the centre halves in front of him as well to ensure that that it was Chelsea that actually prevailed that evening Arsenal didn't really offer any kind of resistance in that second half they just melted away and disintegrated and Chelsea ended up very very comfortable winners if memory serves me right Dom um, he was one of Arsenal's better players not that it's saying very much but he yeah. um, he actually helped keep the score down with some some good saves in the second half mainly um, but, so yeah I don't remember did you I, did you see that coming though? I remember at half time in that game and thinking well, this is this is sort of meandering along a bit here, but the way that they blew them away, twenty three minutes in the second half was staggering. Yeah, the first half was really flat, wasn't it? Um Arsenal I think had slightly better of it. Was it Xhaka hit the top of the crossbar from long range? Um there were a few sort of few sort of dodgy moments in Chelsea's penalty area, Kepa flapping it across, I remember. Um and, and the rebound was sort of shot wide or whatever. But I just remember the second half, yeah, sort of Chelsea really coming out strong and it could have been a, a bigger scoreline than 4-1. Uh, Czech made some really good saves. Um, so like you said, you know, no one could doubt his professionalism because uh, he uh, he turned up to sort of try and spare blush, Arsenal's blushes. And also you remember at the final whistle, he looked absolutely gutted, I think, not just because he lost the game, but of course the final game of his career was was on the losing side and he would have loved nothing more to add one last winner's medal to go out on a high. Remembered as one of Chelsea's stranger trophy successes, might have been remembered as one of the odder finals in, in European club football history, but then 2020 said, hold my beer and we'll uh, we'll get what we get with the Champions League and Europa League this season. All right, that's just about it for this week. Before we go, uh, apart from the Lukaku piece, Dom, what, what else has been uh, in your inbox this week and, and what can Athletic subscribers look forward to reading? I'm writing about coronavirus and COVID-19, I'm afraid, and and uh, the sort of the medical implications of of what footballers who have been suffering from it, um, what they can expect in the in the weeks ahead as the season resumes. Um, there are suggestions that that it that it has long term effects. Uh, their heart problems being they look people are looking into that at the moment as well. Um, so a lot of medical research ongoing. I'm going to talk to some people about that um, for what should be a nice cheery piece at some stage. <laughs> Sounds it, yeah. Uh, Liam, you've got something on on the um, aforementioned squad depth issue, which we spoke about at the top of the show up on the site at the moment. Yeah, so I worked together with Michael Cox, Mr Zonal Marking, um, to take a detailed look at the way the five substitution rule could impact the European chase and the relegation battle. So we looked kind of squad by squad to see which which clubs could stand to benefit from maybe being able to bring on a few more fresh faces during games. And I think Chelsea, the, the broad conclusion of that is that Chelsea is, is certainly one of the better place clubs because even if the squad doesn't have the top line quality that some people would like, it, it certainly has plenty of depth and even more now with, with players fit who maybe weren't before. 
Um, aside from that, can't really say too much at this stage, but there, I'm working on some longer term projects uh, to do with Hakim Ziyech and, and also on Jorginho, which may or may not go up this week, but they'll be with you at some stage in the in the future. How about you, Simon? I am doing a interview with the Italian Ryan Geeks, which for fans of an elder disposition um, is Gabriele Ambrosetti, um, who was um, signed by Gianluca Vialli, and he infamously compared him to the Manchester United legend. And I spoke to Ambrosetti in, in great detail uh, about what was certainly a career that didn't live up to the comparison with Ryan Giggs and uh, yeah, he was very honest about his time there and, and the, the impact or the negative impact of those words that basically had on his career at Chelsea and, and how he struggled to live up to that comparison. Sounds good. Looking forward to reading that. We'll be back next week when hopefully we'll be tantalisingly close to football restarting in England. Stay patient, stay safe. I did not say stay alert until then. But for now, from Dom, from Simon, from Liam and from me, it's goodbye. Goodbye.